welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We return to our verse-by-verse study of Luke, having been out of it for a week or so, and we are in the midst of the final hours of Passion Week. We come now to the betrayal of Jesus Christ in the garden. Let us hear the word of God, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 53. While he was still speaking, There came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, if you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's holy word. May we draw both conviction and comfort from it in his wonderful name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, we come now to the midnight hour of betrayal. And it is without doubt the worst episode of human betrayal in human history. And that's saying a lot given the tragedies and the duplicity of the human heart over the ages. But this is the worst betrayal of the best heart ever. Now we're going to learn a lot here. It's a somber passage as you can imagine. But in it, There are things that we'll see, first of all, about Christ's supreme response, how powerfully and thoroughly at peace Jesus walks through this episode, and we're going to learn to worship him more because of it. We're also going to see human frailty on display, courtesy, of course, of the disciples. But we're also going to see that even in the person of Judas, no one could be immune from the depths of that sin. And we're going to gain insight into our own frailty and our own walk. And finally, we're going to see that God's hand was over even the hour of darkness. And we're going to get an insight into what we call divine sovereignty. A sovereign is a, is a, a king in total authority over all things and all people. And our God is sovereign. And he is in control of all events and all people, and he's in control even of this hour of darkness, Jesus declares at the end of this passage. And because of that, 
we can have great comfort if we are going through hours of darkness in our own lives. In fact, maybe right now, as this text comes to betrayal, it's especially meaningful to you because you're experiencing betrayal right now in your life in some way, through some relationship. You're innocent. People who are betrayed always are. There's, there's innocence in your life and in your world. But you've already been damaged by the betraying heart of another. It's happening right now in real time. And so this text will course through your mind in a very powerful way. And God is in it. Or maybe you're shipwrecked on a betrayal of the past. It's so easy to happen. All of us with any length of life have gotten wrecked on the shoals of betrayal by someone's actions in the past that have so wounded us and damaged us that we can't get off of that shoal. We can't keep moving. We keep going back to the memory and the hurt and the emotional trauma or the lost relationships. Well, there's hope and ministry for you and you know, I think often of what we tell people who are in the midst of human sorrow like that, and it's good advice, and that is, how, how many people have told you, remember, God is in control. And it's good advice, it's, it's, it's powerful advice, but haven't you had a response in your heart in the depths of your pain as you're being betrayed? But isn't there something more you can tell me than that? Isn't there something more that can comfort me than that? And yet, we're going to find out that in the life of Jesus, it is the greatest, it was the greatest understanding in that time that gave him the greatest peace in that moment. That even in an hour of darkness, his father was over it all. God is in control. He's sovereign. And no, that's not just a throw-off phrase that a loving believer can give you. It is the ultimate truth you need to know in time of human pain. It's what steadied Jesus, and it can steady you. And so we're going to explore this and come into greater wonder of the Savior and learn some things about ourselves too. As I studied this week, many commentators, one stood out, Dr. Robert Stein, who said that really this whole encounter in the garden in these verses is sort of like a a drama or a play in several acts. Now, you know, plays are made up of acts, and acts are made up of scenes. And I took that thinking, and I really look at this as one act in the, in the passion play of the final days of Christ. So the, the passion week is the play, and then there are different acts in it that, that occur throughout those final days. And this is certainly one act. It's an act built around betrayal. So I would say that I'm going to look at this as an act in the play of passion. And, and, and acts are made up of scenes, aren't they? And I've seen four scenes in here. So borrowing from Dr. Stein, I'm going to preach this as an act of betrayal that we see unfold in four scenes. First, the betrayer rises. That's the person of Jesus, Judas. And the scene emerges. The second scene is... Christ responds majestically and lovingly to, to the, the treachery of Judas. Third, in the middle, almost on cue, the disciples bumble in and react pathetically. And Jesus has to correct them yet again. And finally, Jesus reveals 
that over the entire scene, his father rules over the entire episode. So one act, four scenes. Let's let the curtain open and let's watch this act of betrayal and how it unfolds. Scene one is where Christ's betrayer rises. Look at your text. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. So Judas rises into his worst moment on the human stage, and he had a number of them. But he now rises to the moment for which he is remembered the most. Now I want you to remember the run-up to, to how this all is is, is come into place. What, what are the events that have preceded it? This is in Passion Week, of course, and this is uh, an, an event that happened around midnight or early in the morning, around midnight of Thursday night or early Friday morning. By late afternoon of that Friday, we call it Good Friday, that was crucifixion day, and by late afternoon, Jesus would have been crucified, dead, and buried. Now, that night previously had been spent by Jesus with his disciples, including Judas, in the upper room where Jesus had, had celebrated the final Passover with them and then introduced communion to them as a, a coming memorial of his work on the cross. And, and in the midst of all of that, he had washed their feet. And then he had dropped the, the terrible news that even at the table, his hand on the table was, was next to the hand of a betrayer. Judas was revealed in that hour. And Judas leaves to go do his deed, even though Christ, even in that hour, was giving him a chance to be exposed and to repent. Judas leaves and goes out into the night, and Christ then, with the eleven that remain, his true disciples, those who are true believers, he brings them into a length of teaching. And we see it in, the, in John uh, uh, 14, 15, and 16, to prepare them for their life without him as he ascends, and they carry his message into a, a hateful culture. And then he prays over them as only their pastor could in John 17. Then they find their way out of the, the upper room, having sung the final hymn of the Passover evening. They descend through the streets of East Jerusalem, down through the terraced hillsides there, and they cross the brook Kidron, running red already, with the sacrifices that have been offered in the temple. And they move their way into Gethsemane, at the bottom edge of the, gar of, of the Mount of Olives, rather. And at the bottom edge of the Mount of Olives was a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would often go with his disciples. They spent their nights there in seclusion and in hiding, to be honest. And he would often go there to pray. He leaves eight of the disciples at the entrance to the garden, takes three others, Peter, James, and John, with him to be a little closer to him. He instructs them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Pray because a battle is coming that they will have to face themselves. And then he goes further and faces a solitary battle in Gethsemane in which the enemy himself, the devil, seeks over a long period of great temptation and trial to convince the mighty Son of God to forego the cross, to hold on to his majesty to avoid the scandal of sin and the weight of wrath and to avoid the cross altogether. The great battle is fought. The cup is tipped so that Jesus can see fully into it. And Jesus tells the father, 
that if it is thy will, I will take this cup. And the titanic battle of salvation has a great victory. After those long hours, perhaps, of battle in the garden alone, Jesus comes back. In fact, during that battle, he comes to the disciples twice and finds them asleep, not praying. He comes a final time in our text in Luke chapter 22, verse 45, when he rose finally from prayer, rose in the peace of God, rose in victory. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping again, the text you could add, for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And those are the words that are interrupted by a sound on the hillsides and through the, through the garden and hundreds and hundreds of the enemies of Christ suddenly find their way into the picture. So in the midst of Christ's words to his disciples, you should have been praying. Temptation is arriving. In the midst of that, while he was still speaking, they come. You get the impression that Jesus had told the disciples, listen, a great trial is on the way, and you need to pray to be strong, to stand in truth and in faith in the midst of it. But they were not ready. On the other hand, Jesus had prayed through, and he was ready. He was in, in a place of peace with the Father, and he was ready to walk into what was coming. You almost get a sense that God the Father had held that time in Gethsemane where Jesus battled through and, 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 and that time was held in quiet. It was like a wall of protection the Father had put around that garden until the great battle was won and Christ himself was ready to face these things. And then as suddenly as the wall was placed, you can feel it fall. And the whole scene changes here from solitude and quietness to this sudden arrival of a mob. While he was still speaking, the crowd arrives. It's quite a crowd. Crowd is a good word to use here because it was hundreds of people. Don't let any uh, uh, technicolor movie images fool you about the, the, the group that came that night. It was made up according to the Gospel of Matthew. And by the way, all four Gospel writers talk about this episode. It was that critical. And Matthew gives us a lot of detail. He said the chief priests were there and the elders, meaning members of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling uh, body of Israel at that night made up of 70. We don't know how many of them came, maybe all, we don't know. So the chief priests were there with all of their entourage and their assistants. We know they were there. We know many of the elders, maybe all the Sanhedrin, had been forced to walk into that garden uh, in, in political solidarity. We know that there were guards, our text says, and, and others tell us, and Matthew, Matthew says, the guards from the temple were there with their clubs, not able to carry swords and spears because they were Roman under, under Roman occupation, but there with clubs, with, with clubs to hold order as they could. They were there, and Matthew tells us they were also accompanied by a cohort of Roman legionnaires. The Greek word tells us it's the word used for cohort to describe uh, a group of Roman soldiers. How many soldiers were in a cohort? Up to 600. We don't know how many were here. It could have been 600 coming behind this body of angry Jewish leaders and then surrounding the perimeter of the garden because, you see, they'd come to catch somebody that the Jewish priests had convinced them was a revolutionary was a rebel, and they, they were prepared for armed conflict. 
And they were prepared also for this rebel to melt away into the, into the, the darkness of Gethsemane and try and make his way out through the edges of, of that garden. And so there's no doubt that that 600-man force stood surrounding the perimeter and then thickened the crowd. It was quite a moment. And leading all of this, how revealing it says, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Judas, the betrayer, darkly rises. He didn't have a, a back row role in this. He led this. He wanted this to happen. And he was ahead of all of them. It says he was leading them in he was called one of the twelve, and, and, and most of the time he's described with that phrase, one of the twelve, and the reason is because the gospel writers, century, decades after, rather, this, this whole event still could not get over the fact that someone who had been that close to Jesus would do this to Jesus. So it's a statement of amazement. You could read it, Judas, one of the twelve, leads the way to betray Christ. In all of the gospel lists, it's been often noted by commentators, the name of Judas is always dead last. Not much is said about him. He was universally regarded by the early church as the worst of sinners, the greatest fallen man. In fact, when the, when the church used to gather, uh, they... they uh, would often practice the holy kiss, which was a kiss on either cheek or both cheeks, men to men, women to women. And it was always the way you came into your house church or, or wherever you were gathering. And they practiced the holy kiss, as, as you see in Scripture, every single time they worshipped all year long except one worship service. Whenever they worshipped on Good Friday, no one exchanged a kiss because it was the emblem of Judas's treachery. That's how marked he was in the life of the church. And so Judas darkly rises and his betrayal begins and he steps onto the stage for his famous and horrible moment. Now we look at Judas today with the same kind of disdain that they did. And a lot of people would ask the question, how could Judas do what he did. What was he like as a man? Was he unusually evil? We know that at a certain point Satan entered him, but that was only in the final hours after his decisions had been made. So that's instructive. He was a man like we are. So people would ask, how can anyone fall that low and how could anyone drop into the, the well of deception that deeply, the worst of all time? And the answer is that he did not truly know Jesus. Jesus himself said that Judas was a son of perdition. The son of hell is basically how to translate that. That was the nature of his heart, and that was the destination of his life. He did not truly know Jesus. And yet, there were a lot of things in his life that deceived him away from that and that deceived others into thinking that Judas would be the last person in the world to do what was done that night. Maybe think about it a minute because all of us also proudly think, well, that's Judas, the worst of the worst. I'm so glad I'd never do a thing like that. 
I'd never deny Jesus like that. I'd never betray him like that. Well, don't be so sure because he was made of the same stuff as you. And he had advantages that a lot of people depend on today to convince them that they're, they're right with God. One commentator I read this past week uh, talked about four different parts of the life of Judas that were very, very deceptive and that he may have leaned on and others may have looked at him and said, surely Judas loves Jesus. First of all, I pointed out that Judas had Bible knowledge. He had a lot of it. And that's true. Judas, like all the other disciples, got to listen on every mountainside to every sermon Jesus ever preached. And then he sat in every room where Jesus ever held, held time with his disciples at the end of the day and explained his teaching. So he got it preached and then he got it uh, taught and exegeted and explained and applied every single night, three and a half years it came to the point, I'm sure, where Jesus, Judas, being an intelligent man, could do what some of the other disciples could do. He could repeat what things that Jesus had said. He knew Christ's sayings, his sermons, and his parables. He was given the insider knowledge in terms of what the parables meant. This guy had Bible knowledge. It's possible that Judas had, had at certain points, even changed his thinking as he, as he learned points of wisdom from Jesus. We don't know, but... He was among the group when Jesus looked at the disciples and said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. He'd heard parables, all that knowledge. But you know what? That knowledge did not prevent him from this wickedness. Second thing was pointed out is that he also had spiritual experience. And that's true. I mean, he had many experiences with the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, uh, you know, to know doctrine is one thing, but you must have an experience with Jesus and sense the nearness of Jesus. And then he becomes more real to you. Well, Judas knew the nearness of Jesus Christ. He was with him constantly like the others were. He could have been as close to Jesus as he wanted to be. Now, it's indicating that in the listing of the disciples, usually Peter, James, and John are all listed first and then Andrew. And the idea there is that we, our best guess is that those were the four that were the closest to Christ in terms of relationship. But who cultivated that relationship? The four did. Anyone in the list could have been as close to the Jesus as they wanted to be. But Judas did not cultivate that. But we know that he was, he was as close to Jesus as he could have been. And we know that in the final night in the upper room, just hours before this... He was in the room when Jesus uh, took on the towel around him and washed their feet. Do you remember that? Judas, it looks, it appears as we study all the texts together, that Judas was very probably in the room and Jesus washed his feet. There was only one person that refused to have their feet washed. Who was it? Peter. And then he said, then he, then he agreed. So Judas never whimpered, even though all of this plotting was already cascading through his mind. What kind of an experience do you want with Jesus? I would say that the, the creator God washing your feet in humility and love is quite the experience. He had all kinds of experiences with Jesus and nearness to Jesus, and he cast it aside. I've known a lot of people that have had experiences with Jesus, moments of miracle, healing, other things, and yet 
they've manifested in their life in the ultimate way that they didn't love Jesus. They went on to deny him and move from him. Oh, experience won't keep you from ruin either. Thirdly, was pointed out, he had a blameless life. His life was really together. He was a guy that was talked about with admiration. How do we know this? Because out of all of them, they chose Judas to handle all the money and the donations that were coming in to to Christ's band of disciples. Now, wouldn't you have thought that Matthew would have been a better choice? I think so. The tax collector, the finance guy, Judas. What's the only possible explanation? In my mind, Judas had an even more impressive outer life, outer set of disciplines, outer togetherness. It got so that when Jesus said, the hand of my betrayer is on the table tonight in the upper room, nobody's eyes went to Judas right away. You didn't see 11 sets of eyes go, (laughs) finally. They all said, who could it possibly be? Nobody suspected Judas. He was a leading life, and, but his morality was unquestioned on the outside. His Judaism was unquestioned. But you know, you can have a very together life and that can, can gain you nothing in terms of a real relationship with Christ. And finally, we know he had a ministry because Jesus was part of the 12. He was sent out with the 12 into Galilee in the second year of Christ's ministry, given the power to heal, given the power to work miracles, given the the power to help blind people see, and given the power to preach and see people come into the kingdom. For a, for a, a few weeks there, G- Judas, has been said, was one of the top 12 preachers in the world. Think about it. Empowered and allowed to taste the power of God and see lives change through truth that came from his lips. Whose power was it? Judas's? No, it was the power of Christ and God, and that should have humbled him and amazed him, but he thought nothing of it. So serving in the ministry is no guarantee of a person's salvation either. You can have Bible knowledge and not know Jesus. You can have had spiritual experiences connected to Jesus and not know Jesus. You can have a very together religious and moral and ethical life and not know Jesus. And you can even be in the ministry and not know Jesus. So I look at this very first scene in the act of betrayal and I remind myself, Judas was made of the same stuff as I. He walked into his sin, and none of his privileges counted. What he had to do was he had to surrender his sin and seek his Savior, and he never did it. Even that night when Jesus, as we see in the next scene, gives him one final chance to stop, to repent, to consider what he's doing. He throws it away. Well, this dark betrayer has risen. Now we come to scene two. Go back to your passage. And in scene two, Christ himself powerfully responds. Judas is is there, and at the end of verse 47, the crowd has arrived, the soldiers are stationed, the priests with their their smiles and the guards with their 
clubs. And Judas steps forward and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus, in the next verse, seems to stop him. And as Judas strides forward, Jesus already knew what he was planning to do, because he's Almighty God. He knew that Judas was going to betray him with a kiss. How would that have occurred to anyone? Jesus is sovereign God. He knew in the hour. And as Judas steps forward, Christ stops him. So the betrayer rolls up with the mob. It's a humanly terrifying situation. It would overwhelm anybody, and yet Christ in power and peace is in total control, and he responds, and he does two things, or we see two things here, rather. First is Judas had just planned a cold kiss. You see, he needed a method to identify Jesus because he knew Jesus would be surrounded by the disciples, and he knew that people in the, and the entourage, particularly the Romans, would not have really known very well who he was. And so he needed a signal so that the guards could rush quickly forward and take Jesus before resistance started. But he really didn't need a signal. He could have just walked up and pointed him out and said, Behold the man. Wickedness, it's brave, it's bold, but seldom brave. <laughs> and so he comes up with the worst possible idea, the worst possible thing, the thing that would break the Savior's heart the most. I still think the devil was trying to keep Christ from that cross, and I think one of the things he was trying to do that night was to break his heart through this deep betrayal. William Barclay, the great New Testament researcher, said this, when a disciple met a beloved rabbi in the time of Jesus, he laid his right hand on the rabbi's left soldier, shoulder and his left hand on the right shoulder and kissed him. It was the kiss of a disciple to a beloved master, and that is what Judas used as a sign of betrayal. You don't get darker than that. Jesus knows that this is coming it's so ugly when you think about it, and you understand the whole flow of that night. It's unjust, of course, because Jesus is innocent. Everything about this was illegal, by the way. He had committed no crime. He'd been in public the entire week. According to Jewish law, it was illegal to do two things that they were doing. One was it was illegal to arrest anyone at night. You were not allowed to do that. That person needed the benefit of full public awareness of what was going on. That was a Jewish law. They violated their own law. And secondly, it was illegal to arrest anyone on the testimony of a witness who had been paid. The silver was still in Judas's bag as he strode up to Jesus. All of this was unjust. It was thoroughly unloving because of how Jesus, Judas chose to betray Christ with a kiss. And it was also unnecessary. If you look at all the gospel accounts in Matthew, it says that as the, this great crowd entered the garden, something happened that Luke didn't record here. When they first came into the garden, Jesus stepped forward, not Judas, and he said, Who are you seeking? Do you remember this? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus simply said, I am. And the Bible says they all fell back under the power of his word and his presence, and fell down. 
They dusted themselves off, and Jesus said again, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Now you let these others go. That had happened just in the moment between verse 47 and 48. So they already knew who he was. He'd already shown his power and that he was willing to be taken, but that wasn't enough for Judas. Judas walks up to him anyway. And he has to plant that cold kiss. That's how much Judas hated Jesus. That's how much he wanted him to suffer. It was calculated. Oh, he'd planned a cold kiss. But in the midst of all of that malice, look what happens in verse 48. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? with a kiss. Here's the second thing I see. As Judas had planned a cold kiss, Jesus offered conviction and mercy. Even in that final moment, Jesus spoke into his sin, you see. He exposed him. He stopped him, and he asked him this question, would you Betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You're about to do something that will define your life eternally. Would you continue to do this? You need not. And betray, he used the word out loud that described what Judas was doing, even though Judas would deny it all and just say, well, I'm doing a public service. This man's a danger to Israel. He's a liar. He's a false prophet. He's an insurrectionist. And I've been affirmed by the priests. They all say it's necessary. It wasn't. It was a betrayal. And Jesus uses the words to to reveal the edges of what Judas... Jesus, Jesus uses the words to reveal the edges of what Judas is doing so that Judas can hear it one more time. He's totally exposed. And then he says, you're doing this to the Son of Man. That's the phrase in the New Testament that talked about Jesus as the perfect man. Now what does that mean? Had no sin. It's a way of saying, Judas, you know I'm innocent. You know I'm the one whom, the Messiah whom the Father has sent. You know all of that. You're betraying the most innocent one you can imagine. So it's as if he was saying in that moment, Judas, stop. Think of what you're doing. Now there's a whole school of debate among theologians today as to whether Judas could have repented I'm not going to debate that on the platform with you today, but I happen to be of the school of thought to think that he could have, at least at certain points as he descended into evil. So I would ask, I would ask the, the academic question. What if Judas was stopped in his tracks at that point and the words of Jesus penetrated his soul and, and he realized that he was betraying the innocent Son of God, and that he was on the edge of history's worst moment of evil. And what would, it, what would have happened if he suddenly stopped and he looked at Jesus and he said, Master, you're right. What have I done? Run, Master! What would things have been like? Would the cross have never happened? Would salvation never have occurred? No, Jesus had already stepped forward and said, you can take me 
For all the scripture in Matthew, it says, must be fulfilled. No, even if Judas had stopped and failed to finish his betrayal of Jesus to fulfill scripture, Jesus would have said, here I am to fulfill scripture. Take me. Let these go. He promised the father. He says, of all you've given me, I won't lose one. Judas could have been in that group, possibly. And when they all ran, which Matthew says at the end of this, by the way, Luke doesn't record it. But as soon as they took him in verse 54, they all fled. Judas could have fled and maybe lived to know Jesus instead of heading to perdition. I don't know. Nobody can understand the intricacies of all of this. But we don't have to really answer that question because Judas didn't respond to Jesus, to that tender mercy. Instead, he kissed him. He gave him the cold kiss of betrayal. Now we do know that later on Judas was struck with remorse, the scripture says, and went back and threw the money into the temple at the feet of the priests. People say Judas had a change of heart. I would not say that. I don't think Judas repented. I think he regretted. There's a big difference. You see, in regret he went to the chief priests and tried to ease his soul pain. If he had repented, you know where Judas would have been the next in the next hours? He would have come through the crowds at the foot of that cross as his master was dying. And he would have come to the foot of the cross and said, Master, forgive me. And you know what Jesus would have said? I forgive you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Does that sound like blasphemy to you? All I'm doing is thinking out loud about how deep the mercy of God can be. I believe in this hour Jesus was there offering conviction and mercy. It may apply to you today because either here now or hearing me later, you may actually say, you know, Pastor, you don't know this, but... I'm a Judas. I've sinned so deeply and I've betrayed God so greatly that there's no hope for me. I've gone over the lines. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, my friend, you cannot outsin the cross. He will offer mercy to the very end of your life. Take it. Take it. Well, it's a sublime moment, in my opinion. One of the highest moments of the greatness of Jesus. But now we move to the third scene where the disciples suddenly come barging in. <laughs> and as usual, or, or no, I would say as often with them, it kind of was a clown show. We have the third scene. Christ's followers pathetically react. Judas has missed his moment. He's refused it, actually. The betrayal is now moving. And verse 49 says, And when those who were around him, the disciples, saw what would follow, they saw the soldiers moving toward Jesus. They saw the shackles in their hands. 
They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? What was that all about? Go back earlier in Luke 22, we saw it. Jesus had spoken metaphorically to them about swords and coming trouble. He says, after I'm gone, the hatred of this world against me and mine will curdle, and even your very lives will be in danger. Learn how to wage spiritual war, I think is what Jesus was saying there. But they took him literally, and they thought, since they had a sword or two, they were just going to have to go defend all the interests of Jesus with a sword and take the consequences. And so they misunderstood him. They remembered what he'd said earlier that night, and they misunderstood him. And before they allowed Jesus to answer, isn't that telling? Before Jesus, the mighty son of God, could even say, what, stop? Boom, who, who barges into the middle? Matthew says, it's Peter. They had two swords among the 12. Who in the world trusted one with that guy? I mean, you know, but there it is. And we know from Matthew's account that Peter jumps forward and there was a servant of the high priest in the front ring of people moving toward Jesus. And Peter, as has often been said, was trying to clumsily aim for his head, but he got his right ear and he took his right ear off. And, and Jesus suddenly says, no more of this. I just look at this. They got it all wrong. Jesus had been speaking metaphorically, as he often did in that earlier moment, to prepare for spiritual war, to do the will of God. They thought he was talking about human war, to defeat man. And Peter reaches out and strikes this servant, and Jesus says, no more of this. It's a lot of translations to the very Greek, difficult Greek phrase. But you could put it in the modern vernacular and knock it off. And then he touches the ear of this bleeding slave and heals him. I looked, I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is Jesus living out his character to the very end because he says, when someone strikes you on, your cheek, on one cheek, give them the other. Pray for your enemies. Bless those that persecute you. And in real time, he shows his greatness, God in the garden. I thought to myself, shouldn't that miracle of mercy and goodness made him, shouldn't it have made him stop and step back a little bit? To see this beauty and this blamelessness, shouldn't it have stopped them in their tracks? But oh, it didn't. Because Jesus had said earlier, they will hate me without a cause. That's blind hearts. It's the darkness of man. I have often wondered about Malchus, though, who was the high priest, according to Matthew, who, I'm sorry, the servant of the high priest in verse 50 there. He left the garden with a brand new divinely designed ear. <laughs> and I, I've often wondered, I mean, what would life be like for a man like that through all the rest of his days whenever he heard about Jesus? I wonder if Malchus might have become a believer. He was around the chief priests, and, and so he would have heard Peter preach in Acts 2. 
Might have been on the fringe of the crowd when 3,000 Jews came and gave their life to Messiah. He was in the courtrooms in Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 12 when the disciples were brought in and tried and their testimony was so powerful that that the enemies were speechless and they say they could see that these men had been with Jesus. Malchus was the servant of the high priest. He was there through all of that. How could he have not have heard these things about the risen Christ and not felt his hand come up to his ear? And silently thought, could it be true? Who knows? But Jesus says, no more of this. He stopped them in their foolishness. I, I, you got to stop and ask for a minute, you know, what was, why did he have to be so severe? And what was he really saying? Well, there's two things I think was going on. He was rebuking them and he was really basically saying two things. Peter with your sword in your hand. You're acting like the Father is not with you. (laughs) And you know why that is? It's because you didn't do what I told you to do hours ago. You didn't get into prayer that you could stand against temptation, and you just gave in. And you don't know it yet, but you're going to run with the rest of them, and you'll even deny me. You should have been praying yourself into a walk with the Father, and been able to stand by faith in the midst of all of this. And you're acting like the Father's not with you. Matthew's version, at this point, Jesus actually says in Matthew uh, 26, 53, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't need your puny sword, Jack. You don't understand anything, Peter. I am the Almighty Son of God. My Father at His throne will send me six legions of angels, or 12 legions of angels, 6,000 per legion. That's 72,000 angels. And as has often been pointed out, one angel destroyed 200,000 men in Israel overnight. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of 72,000 of them. Jesus was saying, listen, the Father is with us. But for Scripture to be fulfilled, this has to happen. And that's the second thing he's saying. You're acting like the Father's not with you, and you're acting like the Father has no plan. Look at the next verse in Matthew, in Matthew 26. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? God is in control here. He wants all of this to happen. You should be holding on to Him and trusting Him the way I am, Peter, instead of dragging out some sword and hacking away at some enemy. I thought about that and I realized, wow. When I get threatened, I just... I think ignorantly and I think reactively. And Dr. Wiersbe in his commentary puts it this way, quote, Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying, talking when he should have been listening, and boasting when he should have been fearing. Now he was fighting when he should have been surrendering. <laughs> Peter made a number of serious mistakes when he attacked Malchus with his sword. To begin with, Peter was fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, and they cannot be defeated with ordinary weapons. That was the whole point of what Jesus had said earlier. In his wilderness temptations, Jesus defeated Satan with the word of God, and that is the weapon we must use. Peter also revealed the wrong attitude and trusted the wrong energy, while Jesus was surrendering to the will of the Father. Peter was busy declaring war. 
and he was depending on the arm of the flesh. His whole approach to the situation was not at all Christ-like, and it stands as a good warning to us today. The lost world may act this way, but it is not the way God's servants should act. He reacted in panic and self-dependence. He forgot that the Father is with him, and the Father has a plan. And you know, there are all kinds of things to be concerned about today as Christians. Certain trends in the culture and institutions that you might think are threatening the church, and they are. Forces coming in the garden. And it's right to be concerned, and it's right to speak as you're led. And, but in your concern, be careful not to panic, to fight the wrong war with the wrong weapons, and to act like the Father isn't with us, or that He has no plan. He does have a plan, and He's undefeatable. The act closes. Peter is now chastened. Malchus is now healed. Jesus is about to be seized and shackled. And Judas, now slipping into the shadows, is watching it all. It looks to human eyes like disaster. In fact, in a moment, they're all going to run. But Jesus is not panicked. He's at peace, and he chooses in a final masterful moment to look at that crowd and to talk about what's ultimately going on. The betrayer's risen. The, the mastery of Christ is in play. And so scene four comes, and that's where Christ's Father is seen to ultimately rule. The last phrases go back to the passage from Matthew 26 to Luke 22. Then Jesus said, verse 52, to the chief priests and officers of the temple. He stops them with his word. They stop in mid-stride and he makes a final statement to the crowd. They're frozen in that moment and in that moment he does two things. The first is he reveals the depth of their sin. He says, have you come out against a robber? The word robber there in the Greek could also be translated a traitor or an insurrectionist. And that's how they painted Jesus. And that's how they got the Romans out there enforced. And yet Jesus now says, with swords and clubs you're coming. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. What he's doing there is revealing their cowardice, powered by their satanic malice. He said, you do things like this because you've succumbed to the power of darkness. You're wrapped in sin. And that's what he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You're doing this, but you're energized by something worse than you can imagine, the wicked one himself. Whom the Bible tells us that prince of the power of the air is also the one who, according to Colossians 1, rules the domain of darkness. So he reveals the depth of their sin. What's that? Mercy. One final call. And then the second thing he does, and we begin it to bring it to the close in this narrative as he let them take him away. Understand, Jesus never got arrested in the garden. He allowed himself to be taken away. 
because this was all part of his plan and the Father's plan. He of the 12 legions of angels, it was all part of a greater plan for him to go to the cross for you. And it was all happening according to Father's plan. You see, it really wasn't their hour or the hour of the power of darkness. It was his hour. Jesus had often said that his hour had not yet come. Remember that? People wanted him to act in power and do certain miracles or take charge. And he says, no, my hour has not yet come. And then when he gets into Jerusalem in those final few days, then he changes. And in John 12, he says, my hour has come. John 12, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Who's in charge of the hour of Gethsemane? God the Father and God the Son. The Son walking through it and the Father receiving the glory because they're both on a saving mission. And the, the path to Calvary was through Gethsemane. It had to happen this way. It wasn't their hour. It wasn't Satan's hour. It appeared that way, but it was the hour of the Son. And it was the hour of the Father. I close with one final cross-reference passage to give a little bit more light on this. Acts 2. Weeks and weeks later, Jesus is now risen and ascended, and Peter is preaching. And in Acts 2, some of the same chief priests and the same rulers are standing there listening to him and he says in Acts 2.22 men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst remember the miracles as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up in Gethsemane according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who was, whose hour was it that night? God the Father. And that's the fourth scene title. God's Father, God the Father ultimately rules all things, even the most wicked night in history. God the Father was over it all. He had a definite plan and foreknowledge of it all. Yes, you crucified and killed him. Oh, there's your responsibility. Don't make any uh, mistake on this, that because it was under the sovereign, overarching plan of God, human beings are not responsible. Oh, very much the opposite. But see, God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The Father in mighty control of it all. So... This is really the climax of what I told you some weeks ago as we began to look at Judas's treachery, the climax of history's most wicked night. It was a night of betrayal. Hell's high carnival was dancing around these moments. And yet Jesus, my master, faced it with perfect, total peace. Why? Because Jesus knew the Father was in control. And you see, he'd won the battle of accepting whatever the Father wanted. When he says, not my will, but thine be done. And so peace and power were his. And he went through all of this. He let himself be taken to get to that cross. But along the way, I think we see what spiritual battle is like too. And I hope you're going to worship him in greater majesty this morning. But I hope also that if you're going through a time when you could say, Pastor, you know, 
Hell's having a high carnival over my life right now. I'm going through deep trials. Or I'm living in betrayal from somebody that I love deeply. My counsel, do what Jesus did. Go to the Father in surrendering prayer. Let his will become your will. Or miraculously, your will become his. And begin to learn to pray and to stand in peace. Philip Riken, the commentator, and with him I'd really do close. So this, have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had a close friend turn against you? Jesus knows our pain and understands our suffering for his betrayal was the bitterest of all. Nobody could be more innocent and no night could be more evil. But there's a sense in which his sufferings wouldn't have been complete without this betrayal. How could Jesus sympathize with us in all our sufferings unless he himself had experienced the Judas kiss of personal betrayal? When you feel betrayed, when you are betrayed, remember he felt it too. And come and tell him all that is on your heart. He'll understand. 